0: This is Here Tell, a podcast about true stories and how we tell them. I'm Josina Guess. This show is a project of the low-residency MFA in narrative nonfiction housed in the College of Journalism at the University of Georgia. In this episode, we focus on the art of the micro-memoir, a format explored by Mississippi poet Bethan Fenelly in her book, Heating and Cooling.
1: I like to say the micro memoir allows me to be greedy, I get to have that lyrical abbreviation of poetry, and the arc of storytelling, and the pleasure of truth-telling.
0: We'll hear some stories written by students and faculty in the program, and I'll speak with Moni Basu, the program's new director.
2: I think micro memoir really helps you to distill in your head what it is that you're trying to say. And... Let that be your guide to
0: longer writing. If you're new to Hear Tell, please listen back to some of our earlier episodes, starting with our first one, where Andre Gallant and founding director Valerie Boyd discuss the power of narrative. Boyd was an author, editor, and teacher, and she died last year in February 2022. She formed a diverse and supportive writing community that continues to grow and thrive. Moni Basu, who's taught in the program since its beginning, became program director in January 2023, and she'll join me in a conversation in just a bit. But first, let's turn our attention to the craft of the micro-memoir. Beth Ann Fennelly teaches at the University of Mississippi, and she's the former poet laureate of Mississippi. She spent two days in Athens, Georgia, as a guest speaker in our January residency. When she was here, she read from Heating and Cooling, 52 micro-memoirs what Kirkus Reviews calls a sleek, delightful collection. Here's Beth Ann reading one of her essays from that collection.
1: And what is it you do? He asked, after a moment of silence. My mother was in the bathroom, exchanging her dress for the cotton gown. I had the sense that he was asking to fulfill some kind of med school training, engage the patient's loved ones in conversation five outlandish occupations pinged through my head all lies but i knew i shouldn't mess with him i needed to get him on our side and keep him there i'm a writer i said a writer a light turned on in his eyes suddenly as blue as his scrubs. He put up his fists and bounced them, a cowboy bounding over the plains. No, I said, a writer, which now seemed to require a gesture. So I held up my imaginary pen and wiggled it. Oh, he said, all business again, as my mother came out of the bathroom. Well, he said, me too. He untied her gown with one hand and slipped the black sharpie from his pocket with the other, clamped it between his teeth to remove the cap, and then drew dashes on my mother's naked chest, indicating where his scalpel would go.
0: That was Beth-Ann Fennelly reading Small Talk at Evanston General from her book, Heating and Cooling. In an essay she wrote in 2018 for The Writer, Fennelly wrote, Before we discuss further what micro-memoirs are, it might be useful to discuss what they're not, fragments. Micro-memoirs aren't slivers of a bigger creation. They're designed to stand alone. Beth Ann asked us to imagine that we are writing hummingbirds, creating work that is small, powerful, and fun. Or put another way, to treat our memories as distinct objects in a wunderkammer, or a cabinet of wonders. Fenley invited us to think about 10 particular objects on our own metaphorical and personal shelves. Then we each selected one item from our lives— charged with danger, tension, or energy, and wrote about it. Our cabinets held speculums, diaphragms, paintings, wedding cake toppers. And as you'll hear in the following micro-memoirs from students, a stick, a doorstopper, hold more power than you might think. The following essays include mention of dogs having sex and gun violence. Consider yourselves warned.
2: The stick. The fire alarm will go off sometime. It's almost never a fire, said the Belfast landlady as we rolled in single suitcases bulging with a year of clothes. Over her shoulder, through the front window, two dogs were glued together, mid-coitus, gyrating as their howls turned sharp, high-pitched, pained. The bitch jerked like a fish skewered by a rusty hook, while her paramour floundered like a scape, with his hand jammed up a vending machine slot. Kids in pajamas hurled rocks and empty cans at them. Crisp wrappers littered the street. Nobody stopped. There's a stick by the door, she continued, without turning around or pausing. You'll need it for the rats when you take out the trash. That was Beth Birch.
3: There are 206 bones in the human body. There are 31 parts in an AR-15. There's one doorstop in my office. I teach at Elon University in North Carolina, where that brown-ridged doorstop haunts me like the ghost of a bloody Christmas future. A program assistant handed it to me about five years ago after she attended active shooter training on campus. Officers suggested that the four-inch-long rubber wedges could be shoved through the bottom of closed doors to stop a shooter's ingress and prevent classrooms from transforming into 900-square-foot coffins. Like an ant... This inconsequential 10-ounce object would now have to shoulder the weight of my and my students' lives, apparently worth less than someone's right to bear non-bodily arms. Police in a decade-old video on Elon's website will tell you that the odds of being involved in something like this are the same as being struck by lightning. Maybe, but lightning occurs naturally, and with some warning. There's no way to legislate the electrical snaps out of our lives. But a gun doesn't fall from the sky during heavy rain. There's no natural chemical reaction, only a human one. When my oldest son was three, he returned home from preschool and told me he spent part of his day in a dark closet with his classmates while a teacher told them to stay quiet. His words seemed to ring sharper, louder, longer in the air than the blast from a gun's muzzle. Did you stay quiet, I asked? No, he said flatly, unconcerned. Another line from the Date of Active Shooter training video. And if it does happen, just tell yourself, I will survive. Well, I will survive. I have my doorstop.
0: That was Colin Donahue. The mentors also participated in this exercise. Moni Basu and Valerie Boyd were dear friends, and they took a trip to Paris. Here's Moni reading about a snow globe she brought
2: home from that trip. Snow globe. It sits on my nightstand as though I needed reminder. Glassy. Globular. The price faded on the bottom. 18 euros. Too much. But you had insisted on buying it at the duty-free, tacky, touristy thing. Inside... Snow blizzards like confectioner's sugar on a freshly baked cake. This way, that way, every way. And when it settles, I see you, the hoodie of your Patagonia puffer shielding your braids. We walked arm-in-arm arm in La Marre, gazed into shops selling shiny baubles and low-heeled boots, chocolate almond croissants melted with café au lait in our mouths. In the evenings, we sipped Bordeaux, 2016. That was a good year, the last when everything seemed possible. A white man took us on a tour of black Paris. You didn't seem to mind, as long as we saw where Josephine Baker once took the stage. Then, on an icy November morning, we visited Frédéric Chopin and Coco Chanel and Jim Morrison. Our breath turned to mist that soared to the heavens. We were surrounded by the dead, and yet we never contemplated mortality. We never spoke of such things. What was the use? You celebrated 58, and then you were gone. I wept, I screamed, I shook the snow globe. This way, that way, every way. I waited for the blizzard to settle, flake after flake. I waited for you. Now the days have warmed, and yet I cannot escape the small snowy sphere by my bed. Always winter.
0: That was Moni Basu reading Snow Globe. I caught up with Moni Basu to talk about the craft of narrative writing and the possibilities of the micro memoir in narrative journalism. Hi, Moni. I'm so glad you could join us today.
2: Hi, Josina. Thank you so much for having me on.
0: So tell me when narrative writing first grabbed a hold of you.
2: So, you know, I grew up in the world of daily journalism. I was a newspaper reporter, and I reveled in writing fast, furious news, having as many bylines as I could. But it wasn't until I started covering the war in Iraq that I truly understood the power of story. I was just one reporter among thousands, trying to cover a very difficult story, and I was mad mad at the American media about the way they were portraying Iraq and about how American soldiers were being portrayed as invincible fighters, warriors, gone to war, and that yet they were coming home destroyed. The ones who survived and even the ones who did not suffer any physical injuries, so many of them came back with Emotional scars, mental scars, and it wasn't just the soldiers, it was their families. And so that's when I realized that I needed to do something to make my stories that were being published at that time in the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, to make them stand out. What could I do? I was just one person. And I began working with an editor who is now a mentor in the MFA program, Jan Winburn, who, of course, had by then established herself as a award-winning narrative editor. And so the idea was, you know, this is at the heart of all narrative journalism, I think, is to, first of all, narrow the lens. War is a very complicated and big topic. And I think most of us get daunted by you know what what do we cover in the middle of chaos and death and destruction and so the first lesson for me was to how to narrow the lens in other words don't worry about what's happening everywhere just look in front of you look at the person standing in front of you tell that person's story and tell it well the other thing I learned, really, about storytelling during my experiences in war is—and I think that a lot of writers make this mistake when we write about trauma—we tend to write about people in that moment, and it's usually their worst moment in life, right? And we don't go beyond that moment. You know, that's why you see all the satellite trucks and the media convene on these stories that capture the headlines for a few days, and then they all disappear. So that's the thing I learned. It's like, write about the person standing in front of you, and don't abandon them. Go past that moment that you're writing about, and tell how that person is coping even after that moment of trauma has gone. Human resilience, we talk about it very casually, but it truly is a marvelous thing. And to be able to capture people in the moments after they suffer and how they cope with life after that, that's what I became fascinated with. And those are the stories I think that people really that resonate with people. They remember because we all suffer in our lives. We've all gone through some loss, trauma, and that's how we are able to connect to one another. We all know this in the MFA program. We talk about it quite a bit, about stories or how we as human beings have always communicated with one another. And I don't, you know, I if that's the way, if that's our most fundamental way of communicating with one another, then why aren't we telling stories in the media? And so that became my goal. And I think what I saw in Iraq really opened my eyes to the power of that kind of narrative storytelling.
0: Moni, you've been teaching in this MFA program since it was founded in 2015. What have been some of the highlights in mentoring MFA students? And what are some of your hopes for the program now that you're the director?
2: Oh, highlights. How many hours do we have? (laughs) (laughs) You know, when I first started teaching in this program, Valerie recruited me to be one of the founding mentors. At that point in my life, I had done some mentoring at at CNN, and I taught a class here at UGA as an adjunct. But It was through this program that I discovered how rewarding it is to be able to work with someone and to help them improve the work that they're doing. I've edited a book manuscript, Andre Gallant's book. He was one of my first students, High Low Tide, which the University of Georgia published. And there have been other books written in this program. And of course, we're immensely proud of that work. But I think for me the successes are great you know and the successes that get a lot of media attention that they're all terrific but for me the real richness of this program is to see someone's eyes light up when they finally get the power of story. It could be a journalist who has writ- was like me, had written and reported for a number of years, but never really writ- told a true story. Or it could be someone who, we've had students who've come into this program with no journalism experience. They come in with an idea, they want to tell a story, And it's so wonderful when they finally have that realization of like, oh, I can do this. It's just the twinkle in their eyes and the excitement in their voice. And this happens, by the way, every semester with every student. This is really the most rewarding thing I've ever done in my life, to work one-on-one with the students in this program and to see them come in with an idea, then the idea starts to take form and shape and they write a draft and then they realize, oh no, it's not working and we go over it many times and then they go on to another mentor who has other ideas and then they come out of this program with all this beautiful work. I think one of the richest experiences I've had is when we have the graduating students read their work. It's amazing to hear them read that work and realize, wow, this is a person who had never written when they came into this program. Not like this, anyway. The highlights are every day, you know, in this program. And uh, I think Valerie Boyd, who founded this program with so much love and expectation in her heart, I think she's smiling down on us right now. Snow Globe
0: was a very vulnerable piece that you shared and wrote and Uh, read in our classroom setting. And when Beth Ann Fennelly invited us to participate, you entered in as the director of the program, but also as a participant and in sharing your own work. And I wonder if you could just speak a little bit about how that felt to create a learning environment in which teachers and director are learning alongside one another.
2: Well, I'm glad you asked that question because I just talked about how um, the amazing work that our students do, but I can't tell you how much I've grown as a writer in this program. My role is as a mentor, but I believe I learn just as much from my students as I give to them. It's a give-and-take experience, and it's the one-on-one mentoring that allows for that to happen. I also thought that the session we had on micro-memoir, the writing exercises that we do as a group together are really, really fun for the mentors. I think that the students appreciate that too, that we as mentors are doing the same exercises that they're being asked to do. Snow globe was not easy for me to write. The task for that exercise was to think of an object that we have in our possession that means something to us. And You know, I've moved so many times in the last few years that I've really shed a lot of stuff that I used to hold on to for many years, and I had to really think about what am I going to write about. I don't really have that many objects that I really covet, and here I had this really tacky souvenir that Val forced me to buy at, at the Paris airport, and that's the one thing I couldn't get rid of in all my moves. I kept that. But then when I started to write it, I was like, well, I don't, I'm not sure what I what would I say about this tacky object. And it, and it was great to engage my mind that way and to really force myself to think about why I've held on to the snow globe and wrapped it in five tons of bubble wrap and the move to make sure it didn't break. Uh, and why it still sits on my nightstand. This last year has not been easy for me, losing one of my best friends and now taking over the program that she launched. It's a pretty big responsibility to make sure that we grow and thrive as the program. And I think this was my tribute to her. To me, it wrapped up everything that this program is about. I was writing about my One of my best friends, I was writing about the woman we all loved and admired and was writing about the woman who created all this. So it was fitting. I think everyone enjoys doing the exercises with our students. I feel like it breaks down those walls and makes us all feel like we're in this together. We're taking this writing journey together.
0: Since we're focusing on the micro memoir. Can you talk a bit about the value of how writing small can help us inform our ability to write longer form pieces?
2: We tend to think of narrative as being long. But of course, we all know that narrative does not necessarily mean long. Narrative means story. And I think also what I've learned over the years is that writing short is a lot harder than writing long because now you have to be economical with your words. You have to really focus. You have to think about what it is that you're trying to get across with your writing. And I think that is, for me anyway, it is better to start short and build on it and add to it sort of like, you know, you've got the foundation for a house now, and you can put all the other stuff on, and eventually all the bells and whistles that go into making a house a home. But if you start with the larger home, and then you try to pare it down, because now you have to write a shorter piece, that, in my mind, is a lot harder to do. Because then you don't know if you're actually breaking the foundation in the process, and your whole house is going to come tumbling down. That exercise was really, for me, eye-opening and instructional. So I am hoping that I will get away from, in my own writing, to get away from longer pieces and attempt to write shorter ones like this.
0: You wrote a story a few years ago for the Flamingo, a Florida journal, about a town in Florida with a large community of people that are exploring spiritualism. And in that story, you explored your own grief of losing your parents and your own journey towards embracing or exploring spirituality in your own life. And when I was interviewing you for a piece that I wrote about Valerie Boyd called Valerie's Web, you mentioned some dreams you'd been having about Valerie and dreams about Saraswati, a Hindu goddess. And I wonder if you could tell me some more about those dreams. And I really would love to For you to share now how you've been exploring all of those things.
2: I went to Casadega a few years ago. That's the story that you just mentioned that was published by Flamingo Magazine. And it is home to the largest spiritualist camp in the American Southeast. And I went there thinking I was going to write about them, those people who live there. But in the process of reporting that story, I thought a lot about my own experiences. I grew up in a household. My father really wasn't a very religious or even a spiritual man. We didn't embrace any faith in our house. But in my extended household, we did. My father's mother, my mother's family, they all were fairly spiritual people. And the one thing that we did have in that extended family was the celebration of the goddess Saraswati, the goddess of learning, because that's what all good middle class families did. We worshipped the goddess of education so that your children would do well in school. (laughs) And so it was a big event in our extended family. And I recently have been having these dreams about Valerie, because I wouldn't be here today without Valerie sort of pulling me in, as you said, I was part of that web that she wove, and pulling me into this world of education and learning and teaching others. I'm so grateful that I am where I am today. I enjoy what I'm doing so much, and sort of giving back everything that I've learned to folks who don't have maybe the same experience that I do. So I've been having these dreams about Valerie, where sort of she appears as, it's the goddess Saraswati, but with Val's face, you know? And that's sort of how I think of Valerie, as as a wealth of wisdom and knowledge and someone who wanted to impart all that to the world. And she certainly did. She touched so many lives. In recent years, I've been thinking a lot about what happens after death. This is a question that I never really contemplated until my own parents both died in 2021, two months of each other. I like to think that their spirits were with me. I certainly feel that in some ways. I think the older I get, the closer I get to facing my own mortality. I I've been thinking about these things a lot more. And with Val's death last year, that sort of dredged everything up for me again. And I don't know. I don't have answers. I don't know what exactly happens. But I do think I've come to believe that we all possess souls and when we die, that those souls go free in some way and they exist among the living. That's what the spiritualists believe. The people I interviewed for that story in Florida, that's what I had in common with them. I come from a Hindu tradition in India that also believes that. So that story made me think about all these things and I really believe my parents, I really believe Valerie is with me as I go through the rest of my days. Thank you, Moni.
0: And as you go through the rest of your days, I'm just curious if you could share a little bit about your own writing life or any projects that you're working on.
2: Yeah, so thank you for asking that. You know, uh, I'll say a couple of things. As a professor of journalism here at the university and before that at Florida, I felt very strongly, I feel very strongly, that we need to stay connected to the world of writing. I know a lot of folks who stopped doing their own journalism, you know, and I didn't want to be one of those folks. So for that reason, I've kept up my work as a freelancer. But really, it's more than that. For me, writing does come in seasons. And for me, this last year has been rather dry. I had a lot going on in my life, and now that I'm back in Atlanta, which is what I, the city I I consider my home, at least here in the United States, things have settled down a little bit, and I've gone back to writing. I'm I'm actually in the process of um, editing one piece, and I'm going back to Florida in a couple of weeks to report another story. This piece that I just finished has a lot of meaning for me. It's about a man who was jailed in Nicaragua for almost two years as a political dissident by Daniel Ortega. My master's thesis was on the Nicaraguan Revolution, and I sort of idealized the Sandinistas and everything that they did after they came to power. I thought there was going to be real change in Nicaragua. So this was a real difficult story for me to write because... Of course, it's turned out that Daniel Ortega and his wife have completely betrayed the revolution. So this story was hard because this man had suffered a lot of trauma, but also because it just went against everything that I once believed in. But it was important for me to report it and write it, And it felt good to go through that writing process and work with an editor. So I'm looking forward to it. I think it's important. I think all the mentors in this program write on some level or the other. I think most people in this program do try to write something every day. At least we tell people that's a good thing. Some days, really, for me, it's one word. (laughs) It doesn't go beyond one word. But at least I feel, okay, I've written something. These last few months that have been rather dry for me in terms of writing stories, at least I've had that. I've had my one-word entries in my journals. <laughs> but I am pretty excited that I'm back to working as a freelance journalist. I do miss reporting. I miss journalism. I grew up, I mean, I spent 40 years in journalism. And I don't think I would survive without it. Moni, thank you so much for taking
0: the time to sit with me. I appreciate all that you have to offer and that we can keep the
2: conversation going. Well, thank you, Josina, for having me today and for hosting Here Tell. I'm so happy to see it back up and running.
0: Thank you for listening to Hear Tell. I'm Josina Guess. This episode was produced by Diana Kio, Class of 2021, and edited by Amy Padula, Class of 2024. Many thanks to Andre Gallant, Class of 2017, for hosting and producing the first 15 episodes of Hear Tell. We'll be back soon.